Welcome to the Future Accords on KTUH University of Hawaii Radio for the cultural and educational enrichment of the students of Hawaii as well as the global community. On this show, we will interview thought leaders to hear about their past, present, and hopes for the future. Join us as we dive into topics around the five P's of sustainable development, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and let's explore the future together. Aloha, and welcome to the Future Accords. This is your host, Ari Eisenstadt. We are recording at KTUH, University of Hawaii Radio, the only station that loves you. And we are joined by Tom Bauman, the founder of the Climate Chain Coalition and a climate clean tech professional with over 20 years experience. He's worked in standardization, capacity, and innovation work around digital technology for transformational sustainability. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. Aloha, Ari, and, and mahalo for inviting me to do this podcast with you. I love being in Hawaii. Oh, thanks for being here. And you can hear from Tom's accent, that is a uh, Canadian accent, but you are here in Hawaii uh, joining us. Uh, is this your first time here in Hawaii? No, it's my sixth time to Hawaii. Started coming about uh, uh, seven years ago. So almost every year we make it to one of the islands to uh, to thaw out from the long Canadian winter. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being here at, at UH. So the way that we, we do these podcasts on the Future Accords is that we like to focus on the past, present, and then the future. Uh, so let's dive into your past. Where, where are you from originally? What is your educational background and how did you get into this climate work? Great. Well, I, I was born in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, which is halfway between Toronto and Niagara Falls. And uh, the the relatively warm part of Canada, um, and it was on the lake uh, Lake Ontario was the first lake uh, that I lived by, and then ended up moving to South Detroit, which is actually on the Canadian side, which is Lake Erie, and then spent a few years up in uh, Lake Superior, uh, North uh, Lakehead area, and now I currently live in Ottawa. And so, uh, living on the lakes was really influential. Um, beautiful part of the the world for sure. Uh, the uh, swimming, the fishing, all of the outdoor activities you could do. And so when I uh, first got involved in the, the uh, environment, it was uh, in the mid 80s uh, and really around the time when environmental issues were still pretty um, emergent, not like today where it's pretty much uh, everywhere around the world, uh, the SDGs and the Paris Agreement and so on. But I started into university in, the in about 1990. Uh, and um, it was there that I really started to get involved with the economics and the engineering and all of the, the science and philosophy and really tackling uh, sustainability. In those days, it was still environmental or natural resources from a, a multidisciplinary perspective because I wanted to uh, come up with solutions that were more transformational than simply piecemeal uh, because the environment was really segmented into waste or air and water and so on. So. Um, in those uh, 11 years doing three different degrees at three different universities, um, looked at uh, really refining the, uh, my knowledge around technologies that were being used uh, and how those technologies could um, be uh, more than simply environmental technologies, right? How could they 
uh, create clean jobs and the clean economy, generally speaking. Around this time, was this when the governments of the world were starting to really look at, at climate change and, and the these international agreements ar- around that? Is that something that, that you saw as a student researching this? Because it was over 11 years, I, I did work while I was doing one of the degrees, actually a couple of them. And around 1997 is when I really started to get uh, close to working full time as I was doing uh, one of the degrees. And at that point in time, up in Canada, we had, in 1998, a number of uh, national programs and uh, provincial-level programs come out for science, for capacity-building technologies, and so on. And so that's where I could really apply this techno-economic capability that I had to looking at the various uh, options, which ones are most cost-effective, best value for money, and helping to become uh, low-carbon development in those days. Adaptation wasn't really high level at that point as it is now today because of the lack of, of action that, on the part of most governments around the world. And so um, starting with that uh, background of looking at these various solutions being applied, whether it was in the scope of a city or within industries and so on, um, ended up going to work at a clean uh, tech climate technology investment fund for about four years. And there we looked at all different types of technologies across all different sectors like agriculture and energy and industry and, and so on. And at that time, we didn't have in place uh, all of the standards. So if you think of climate change, most people understand greenhouse gas inventories, how much is my country or my city uh, emitting, and that's all under the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Guidelines, uh, sort of the international standards for compiling greenhouse gas emissions inventories. Uh, And there were some new methodologies coming out for uh, project-level emission reduction activities you know how can we quantify that emission reduction versus a a business as usual type of baseline but there wasn't really much happening at the clean tech space where we know a lot of these low carbon technologies in those days so we're going back 20 years or so um, were being uh, developed you know, more energy efficient more uh, financially viable as well because cost per ton reduction is you know obviously extremely important but there are no standards at that time so I had to come up with a, a standard to facilitate not only look at each of those technologies separately but as uh, as a whole looking at the entire portfolio for comparability and and seeing where uh, value for money across not just the investment and the environmental benefits but across sustainability more broadly speaking and from there um, some European uh, organizations took note uh, and at that time Europe was by far the leader on climate change uh, with their emissions trading schemes and and various other policies that they had moved forward with quickly relative to say North America and other parts of the world and so I worked with them for a couple of years uh, the organization uh, Detnors Veritas older than the government of Canada so had been around uh, a long time obviously knew what they were doing and so uh, very great organization to work with they're based out of uh, Scandinavia uh, and I was uh, reporting down to Houston at the time and so a lot of their uh, very excellent models that had been proven in Europe weren't exactly transferable over to the North American context because our business world and our, our culture in general is, is different than the European culture and the way they like to do things. And so after a couple of years of working with them, that's when I decided to get into doing some startups myself. Over the last 12 years, it's been six or seven. Fantastic. Around that time, you also started working with the ISO. Could you could you talk about that and what that experience has been like? Yeah, that's a good point. And in, in fact, uh, when I was still at that clean tech investment fund, uh, that's when I, I first became involved in, in ISO, International Organization for Standardization, which was set up just after the Second World War. 
So it's about 70 years old now, and that's an important fact I'll probably circle back to later on in this podcast, uh, to help in the development of new standards uh, for greenhouse gas emissions quantification or emission reduction quantification and all of the assurance that goes along with it. So that's the early 2000s. Um, and at that time, the uh, methodologies, or I should say these ISO standards that were being developed, and most people uh, on this podcast might not be familiar with the world of standards because they're usually hidden behind the scenes, um, but standards contribute a huge value to uh, the, the global economy, whether it's for trade and market access or supporting uh, technology innovations, so standardized components so that you can reduce costs of uh, uh, developing new technologies and transacting those. Um, and about 40% of ISO standards are referenced in regulations, uh, whether they're national or state and so on. And so at that time, these standards held out a lot of promise to facilitate trade in the carbon markets. But ISO uh, um, is a, a very big process. It can take four or five years to develop a standard. Uh, and those standards are internationally harmonized so that they can work in any country, whether it's developed country, uh, rich country or developing poor country, any industry, any sized organization, so big and small. Uh, and they contribute value in that level of harmonization. But it's if you think of standards as a system of related standards, sometimes you get the globally relevant ones and then much more detailed ones, for example, um, in energy efficiency in buildings uh, and being able to quantify the environmental benefit of that while at the same time being consistent with an international standard to provide that comparability. Um, and I wanted to really support the companies, so that's the standards users, so not just create a great standard but ensure that the companies and other stakeholders, sometimes it's cities as well and so on, uh, in developing those standards to be fast, cost-effective, as low burden as possible, you know, having the right data, but maintaining the environmental integrity that's necessary for all other stakeholders to feel that, yes, that's a ton of emissions reductions uh, from that, that particular action. And because of my work with the clean tech uh, innovators who, you know, once they've done their innovation, it's commercialized, it's going to market, they want to go seamlessly into carbon markets. So reduce the need or the burden on those companies in applying standards so that if they comply it once at the pre-commercial stage and then go with relatively little additional effort into the, the carbon markets, we know that we can accelerate their uh, entry into the carbon markets, which generate revenues for them, the value of the, the carbon reduction assets that they're creating, to facilitate their growth as a, as a clean company. Right? And so my involvement uh, in the ISO world really shaped a lot of my subsequent uh, startups that I've been involved in. That's a great transition into your your present role uh, in working on and founding about five startups currently, uh, but also the Climate Chain Coalition, which is an open network of blockchain developers around climate action. So can you tell us about these startups and what, what it's been like to go from the highest levels of international governments down to down to this local startup scene? Yeah, that's right. I, I had no uh, hesitation to go all in with these startups. And there's a, a variety of different uh, types of organizations. So uh, the first one, uh, a for-profit entity that worked a lot with uh, uh, companies, governments, and so on, and helping them prepare to be uh, transform into low carbon uh, organizations. So one example, one of the big Canadian banks that we helped become the first carbon neutral bank in North America, very big, about number seven in North America. Um, and other startups are not-for-profits, 
and so a couple of not-for-profits, and I guess that's four, four other for-profits there. And they're meant to be part of a, a functioning ecosystem. And so in some cases, the not-for-profits, uh, one of them, the first one was the Greenhouse Gas Management Institute that I co-founded. It's a U.S. 501c3. It's just celebrating its 12th anniversary now. And it was really around supporting the capacity building of greenhouse gas professionals. Now, that might seem uh, a little bit uh, extreme or going beyond what's necessary, but uh, when one realizes the trillions of dollars that have to go into uh, uh, low-carbon development mitigation activities or adaptation and resilience activities, and that's trillions of dollars like, per year, those are big decisions to make, and, and so the greenhouse gas professionals, they're going to be counted on to ensure that what they're providing as information, climate services, can be relied on for these investments. And so professionalizing those practitioners up to a high level of um, credibility is important when you look at the macro landscape for uh, the, the, the climate change space in particular. And so one of the first things we did is write a, a code of conduct and to uh, support all of the capacity building across you know this huge array of activities. So uh, that type of uh, startup was really for the bigger good. It's, it's not for profit. Um, another uh, entity that we started up was around creating new tools that these practitioners could use in a much faster market responsive agile way and with greater transparency, cost effectiveness, and that was around creating an online structured collaboration platform for standards 2.0, and that's the link back to ISO, where we wanted to support uh, programs uh, such as the Gold Standard Foundation or the Verified Carbon Standard uh, CDP, which was formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, and many, many others, WBCSD, uh, World Business Council for Sustainable Development, to more effectively engage with their stakeholders, not only um, improving how their standards were developed, but how they got deployed, so that the entire end-to-end -end standard system could be shortened. So from the idea of let's create a new means with which we can determine um, measure, report, verify the sustainability act actions that become sustainability act, uh, assets for, for sustainability markets that attract sustainability finance. When we can uh, come up with a, uh, a, a standardized way of doing that and putting that into practice so that you could build that market very quickly, we just looked at developing uh, that platform to enhance uh, the means with which those transformative change programs could make a difference in the world. And so that was a, another one of the startups that we created, and it's still very viable today. Uh, so we have users like IKEA and Responsible Steel and others, so a big cross-section of them using them for using these tools to support uh, their journey. Wow. And so where does blockchain come into all of this? Oh, great. So blockchain, that's sort of a, a love it or, or hate it type of technology. Is it a force for good? Uh, I'm, I tend to be on the, the optimistic side that I think if everyone makes the effort that it can be an extremely powerful tool. And um, so my first dive into that space was in uh, early 2015, so about four years ago, uh, working with some colleagues of mine in the California carbon markets who had experienced some ups and downs like all the carbon markets. Um, due to a variety of, of challenges, mostly around policy uncertainty uh, or other, other challenges with programs which, by their nature being government-run, are susceptible to, uh, 
to certain risks that that uh, are, are are difficult for businesses and markets to, to deal with. And so, um, using blockchain, including smart contracts, I know blockchain is a very popular short form for distributed ledger technologies and all of the other um, digital allied tools. There um, could be a means with which to reduce that policy and programmatic uncertainty. Whether is this baseline acceptable, or are these rules going to change by implementing them? within the blockchain. Now, this is still conceptual uh, level. In fact, we, we came out with a concept paper published in the Journal for Environmental Investing uh, that was published just before the uh, COP21 Paris uh, UN climate uh, change uh, conference. And so there we did the first side event that I'm aware of uh, for the use of blockchain and next-gen governance, broadly speaking. So this is really looking at not just blockchain in isolation, but as part of this new paradigm or transforming how these platform tools can be re-engineered to support the transformational change that we're talking about under SDGs and the Paris Agreement. And then uh, following that uh, conference, we went ahead and uh, uh, co-founded uh, Expansive, which is uh, based out of California. And then I also started to, I had been working with Don Tapscott, who uh, is uh, a longtime leader, thought leader in the digital uh, economy space, and he had recently uh, started up the Blockchain Research Institute, and so I was taken on because I uh, collaborated with him before on one of his global solution networks initiatives to, to do some research on climate and planetary stewardship and, uh, and blockchains, you know, potential applications there, challenges and so on. And so did quite a lot of research uh, in my role contributing there, but also got a lot of exposure to the rest of the Blockchain Research Institute, so like dozens and dozens of other like world-class researchers and, and using blockchain in, in, in all different sectors uh, in all different ways. And that really helped inform my thinking about blockchain and how it can be applied for climate and sustainability. And um, roughly about the same time, um, having previously worked with World Bank, they had engaged me and some others from Expansive to uh, author a paper on uh, blockchain and its, uh, including all of the other digital tools, um, and how that could be applied to post-2020 climate markets. And so what we were bringing in, what, what I think is pretty important uh, uh, evolution in the thinking of blockchain from you know the Bitcoin and, and using it for digital currencies um, within the carbon markets context and most people will immediately think to well how can we use blockchain for carbon credits and for registries in tracking carbon units and so we're like well of course you can do that but you can do so much more right by thinking about uh, digital twinning and all of the other tools, sharing economy and everything else that can be brought to bear and, and needs to be brought to bear when one thinks about the size of the challenge in, in achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement. Basically, anything that can be innovated to make it more rapid because we need the urgent change, uh, you know, urgent reductions in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and to do so cost effectively to mobilize those trillions of dollars. And so um, in putting together, you know, one of their, their key uh, thought pieces at the time was published, uh, I think, finally last, early last year, just before the Frankfurt uh, Innovate for Climate Conference. Um, and then uh, that led towards uh, COP23, uh, which was just an amazing experience. And I know that's when we first met, right? It was at uh, was COP23. There were so many blockchain activities going on. In fact, 
one of the challenges was just trying to get to them all. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, it went step change, uh, an incredibly exciting new development. And so in my uh, uh, already had a relationship going with the UNFCCC Secretariat, um, and talking to them, it was, uh, and, and sharing experiences, how's it going? They, they mirrored the, the uh, uh, message that, yeah, they, they simply can't respond to all of the interest uh, being expressed towards them on what can we do with blockchain to help you know, achieve the Paris Agreement. And it was on the second last day of COP23 when he said, well, do you think it's possible to bring everybody together in one grand coalition? And I said, well, okay challenge accepted and uh, over the weekend following COP23 I put together the the charter of shared principles and values and pulled together most of the leading initiatives uh, that I was aware of and had met during COP23 and we met uh, at the One Planet Summit which was two years after the Paris Agreement exactly on the anniversary in Paris and we had our founding meeting and uh, I think we started with maybe 25 individuals maybe 12 organizations something like that and it's grown since then uh, now to today, where we have over 160 uh, organizations in 40 countries, and uh, we're just uh, expanding into different languages and different regions. And it's great to see the the various stakeholders in the coalition, which are all different uh, groups, you know, universities and governments and industry and so on, starting to go from uh, getting to know each other and identifying where they could work to actually starting to collaborate together, which is one of the key objectives of the coalition. Amazing. So looking at this coalition into the future, you, you talk a lot about transformative sustainability. What is your vision for this transformation occurring, uh, particularly in the blockchain and climate space? I almost feel like I'm coming full circle because uh, you know, I'm, out of all my years working with clean tech companies and seeing uh, over the last uh, number of years working with uh, uh, IT and digital and greening IT itself, um, I- I'm starting to realize that the technology progress, which is clearly uh, advancing exponentially, uh, it w- it'll transform everything regardless of the sustainability and uh, uh, goals and so on, is that really now uh, the challenge is really people-centric uh, and how to come up with governance systems, governance, governance innovations, which um, is necessary to ensure that these technologies are applied as a force for good, rather than potentially um, becoming uh, something that's difficult to uh, adjust to, because we know that we're going to need these rapid adjustments, and, and the technologies can be very beneficial in some regards, but at the same time they can uh, be... Um, imposing into what was previously a laissez-faire civilization, right? The throwaway, I can live pretty grand to one that, okay, we're within a closed system. Uh, you know, the circular economies will help extend our uh, desire for high uh, st- liver, uh, standards of living and so on. Could you explain what a circular economy is? Well, uh, circular economy, I think, is actually just, uh, it's been around, the, the concept but it's um, actually only starting to be really standardized and formalized that the, the terms and definitions are all over the place. Some of the leading experts uh, you know, disagree pretty significantly on what it is, but in essence, in plain speak, it's, it's ensuring that the materials flows that we have are captured, so high recycling rates that can be uh, used that material in um, 
as many applications as possible so that you, you go to uh, less resource extraction with the environmental consequences of that. And likewise, on the pollution side, we're not throwing plastics and everything else into the ocean that uh, we're starting to reach limits on, if not have severely passed. And in fact, if you, uh, uh, most, I think uh, many of the listeners have heard of uh, Earth overshoot days becoming, uh, I think originally it was pretty close to one year's uh, consumption in one year. Uh, and now uh, that's down to about half of a year. And in other words, we're consuming far beyond our means. And so circular economies ensure that we're using those materials wisely within our limited our planetary boundaries. And beyond blockchain and this digital technology, what are some other technological innovations that you're seeing uh, coming up in the near future that could have a big impact on reducing our reducing our impact on the environment? Well, uh, within the climate space, if I can use that one as uh, as the case, so uh, you know, smart buildings, smart agriculture, using ICT, the information communication technologies, help with the resource efficiency, uh, energy efficiency. So those are being applied in uh, ensuring that uh, our uh, industrial activities or manufacturing or resource extraction is done as efficiently as possible. There's um, you know, the sharing economy, which helps to use the produced uh, assets more effectively as well. So, you know, I think cars is a good example where uh, the majority cars sit for the better part of the day. They're not used, uh, and most of the time they have one occupant. And so, sharing economy ensures uh, um, efficient uh, use of those uh, uh, products and, and devices and so on. Um, the um, other technologies like the 5G, of course, the uh, uh, IoT devices, uh, Internet of Things, like the, the data and, and devices are going to be everywhere uh, within no time. The 5, 5G uh, fast networks, the uh, AI capabilities that take all of the, the data from all of those devices and help uh, inform uh, everything that we want to use, I mean, medical to agriculture to cities and so on. But I think um, uh, blockchain is really uh, the keystone for all of that because um, with this uh, digital um, world that's evolving around us and, and the digital twin concept where everything and everyone will have a digital twin, the uh, use of uh, distributed ledger technology and tokenization is going to be very important for uh, sharing what limited... Uh, uh, resources, natural resources, um, the the overall ecosystem, are going to be key for uh, providing a more equitable uh, sharing of the planet. Because there's so many people that simply aren't being fairly treated uh, in in the context of the whole globe. And I think um, that combination of technologies is going to do a lot for ensuring that the planet is more equitably shared. Absolutely. And so how do you take these technologies and apply that to government from the, the national levels uh, up to the to the UN system? What, what is your vision for, for the future of using these technologies for good governance? This is where I have to make some sort of disclaimer, like this is my personal thinking and uh, not associated with any of the other organizations that I work with that are, are uh, multi-stakeholder so that... Uh, um, they don't feel that what I'm about to say might uh, get them in hot water. But I, I, I think that uh, blockchain um, with these other uh, tools uh, are going to be extremely disruptive, right? The, it, it's going to 
disintermediate. Most people understand how, how Bitcoin can disintermediate the financial sector. And I think um, people also see that many of these intermediaries, whether they're financial or political or, and bureaucratic, will also get um, disintermediated, disintermediated so that um, more empowerment to individuals, because much like the internet um, enables so many people, like smaller companies, to uh, compete internationally, right? Because they have the means to connect and share information. I think the blockchain is going to do much more uh, as well for uh, small for individuals or small businesses to uh, to create markets and engage with each other more, and without the oversight that's imposed slash burden. Uh, that can be uh, imposed through the pretty heavy government systems that are in place. All good intentions, uh, for the most part, I would say. Uh, and, but if we can incorporate those into the uh, the, the blockchain-enabled uh, digital solutions, then I think um, many of these big international beasts that were created at the end of the Second World War are they're looking at you know, their days are numbered, really, and hopefully for the better. Well, absolutely. And that's where it comes back to, you know, is, is blockchain a force for good? And I think it comes down to each of us deciding that, hey, I, this is a, uh, an opportunity that doesn't come across very often. Uh, I mean, this, you know, some people compare uh, blockchain to double entry accounting or something transformative like that centuries and centuries ago. And if people step up and say, hey, listen, these technologies operate on rules and those rules are d developed by people. And so, and this is where I think the, the Climate Change Coalition, being a multi-stakeholder network, where all of the different stakeholders bring in, whether uh, it's values, again, and, and, and principles, to ensure that these technologies are used to achieve the equity, uh, the uh, standards of living, uh, and, and something that everyone can be feel comfortable with. Because the alternative is, if we don't do it individually, someone else will. And that may not turn out to everyone's liking. Absolutely. I think it's about transparency, accountability, security, all of these things. Tom, thank you so much for sharing your insight. Uh, it's, it's really such a privilege. We covered so much information. Uh, is, there, is there a reference online that you'd recommend listeners to go to to, to learn more about these initiatives and to get involved? Well, the climatechaincoalition.org, uh, certainly you can go there. We have um, most of the uh, uh, members listed. Uh, those members are organizing into regional hubs. When Latin America is going to be a big one this year, particularly with the upcoming COP25. Uh, and another one in, in Asia that we're uh, launching as well in June at the Innovate for Climate in, San, in Sing, uh, Singapore. Pardon me. And so, yeah, if they can start there and, uh, and then connect to uh, that network. Fantastic. Well, hope to have a University of Hawaii delegation uh, joining you there. Uh, Tom, thank you so much again for being with us today. Thanks for joining us on the Future Accords, and we will be in touch soon. Aloha. Aloha.